Well, good afternoon. Uh, good evening to, to one and all. Uh, I'm Patricia Schuker. I am the founder of the Global Impact Discussion Series uh, at the Institute of World Politics in Washington, DC. This series aimed to bridge uh, private sector, government, and academia um, to discuss various topics and to uh, merge, merge them as well. Uh, we've got an important and what I am confident will be a really interesting and useful conversation about China and US-Chinese relations in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, the person who is going to lead us through it is Ali Wine, uh, who is one of the leading authorities on China. And his writing, and as well as his upcoming book, uh, will really help frame uh, the debate. So allow me to introduce uh, Ali. So Ali is a non-resident uh, senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and a non-resident fellow at the Modern War Institute. Uh, he's a term member of the Council on Foreign Relations, a David Rockefeller Fellow uh, with the Trilateral, Trilateral Commission, and a security fellow with the Truman National Security Project. Um, Ali received dual degrees in management science and political science from MIT and earned his master's in public policy from Harvard Kennedy School, where he was a course assistant to, um, to Joseph Nye. Ali is a co-author of Lee Kuan Yew, uh, The Grand Master's Insights on China, the United States, and the World, and the contributing author to Power Relation in the 21st Century, Mapping a Multipolar World, and the Routledge, uh, the Routledge Handbook of Public Diplomacy. So he's currently writing a book on great power competition, and I'm really looking forward uh, to your insight, Ali. Um, so the way it's going to, to work is I'm, I'm going to ask a few questions to Ali and we'll probably have a little bit of a discussion uh, and then I will open it up to you uh, online uh, via the Q&A tab that you have at the bottom uh, on Zoom and around the halfway point, uh, we'll get as much questions as we possibly can. That's the goal of the series where I always leave more time for questions um, to, to, to um, allow for a great discussion. So. Uh, let me start uh, by just saying that, you know, I try to keep reminding myself uh, when I think about this of Winston Churchill, the situation mm -hmm. in, uh, and his comment. And I quote, he said, for myself, I am an optimist. It does not seem to be of much use being anything else. <laughs> so I think this is uh, what we try to, to be right now, uh, given the quarantine and the situation we're in mm -hmm. because of the pandemic. So... Let me begin by saying that the U.S.-China relationship is often described as the most uh, important global relationship in the 21st century. Uh, right now, we're getting mixed messages from both sides on the status of that relationship. Um, if the U.S. and China are um, already moving toward a divorce, um, it definitely will be um, an in it's complicated breakup. Um, Rather, neither side, I think, really has the stomach for the legal fees, uh, nor the emotional strength uh, to remain estranged. Um, and the COVID-19 pandemic uh, will in some ways make the breakup even more difficult uh, to, to um, have this rapprochement between uh, the U.S. And, and China. So in short, we'll, we'll see, I guess, more volatility uh, economically, politically, socially, uh, and it won't go away that quick. So the president tweeted, uh, President Trump tweeted that he had a good phone conversation with Chinese leader Xi Jinping a couple of uh, weeks ago, uh, but now yesterday he announced that the trade, um, the trade discussions will not start um, uh, right away. So there's a lot of tension, tensions here as the world grapples uh, with the coronavirus pandemic. So Ali, why don't you just set the stage um, I think that it's always good with, with those calls and as opposed to in person to begin with a little bit of a scene setter. Um, so to ask, you know, where is China right now in terms of uh, to what extent has it returned to normal, so to speak, um, and how much the country is really defined uh, by the COVID-19. And if you can give us a little bit of a context of how the relationship uh, is right now and how much of a critical moment we those two countries are, are uh, currently. So the, the floor is yours, Ali. Sure. Well, well. First, thank you, uh, thank you so much for uh, for for inviting me. Uh, very, very kindly, and it, it's great to be back. I wish we were doing this in person, uh, like we did last year. But hopefully, uh, hopefully, either later this year or next year, we can uh, do this in person. So, uh, I, I like I, I like your observation for you know Winston Churchill's observation about optimism. I'm a congenital optimist as well, but I, I think that right now the it, it's difficult to be optimistic about the the relationship between the United States and China. And 
I was speaking with somebody earlier today and I said that, you know, and perhaps I betrayed a certain naivete, but I said to this person I was speaking with earlier this afternoon, my hope had been that even though the U.S.-China relationship had been deteriorating for some time, I thought that when Washington and Beijing began to appreciate the severity of this crisis, and it really, I think you could argue an unprecedented crisis and that the, the health ramifications and the economic ramifications are both so severe and they're reinforcing one another. I thought that when Washington and Beijing appreciated the singularity and the gravity of this crisis, that they would at least temporarily postpone their strategic rivalry. And what we're seeing is that not only has COVID-19 not interrupted that downward spiral in the relationship, it actually has acted as an accelerant. And I hadn't anticipated that that a that really the crisis of our times uh, would prove to be an accelerant of their uh, deteriorating bilateral relationship. And now the consent, well, I shouldn't say consensus. I always I, I think the consensus it might be too strong, but something approaching a consensus of observers in both Washington and Beijing agree that we now are witnessing the worst relationship between the United States and China since the normalization of relations. So basically, 40 years on, uh, 40 years or so since normalization, and and think about think about the irony of that. And it, it's I, I think it's important to 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 note how tragic and how ironic it is that the relationship would reach its lowest point when the need for their cooperation has reached its peak. And I I think that that disjuncture, it's really difficult to overstate the irony and the tragedy. And so what I I worry is that, uh, well, well, there are a number of worries. One, um, for both the United States and China, this pandemic has become, um, you can't look at it without refracting it through domestic politics. Neither the United States nor China wants to be seen as making concessions to the other, uh, even if those concessions or even if some inclination towards compromise might be for the greater good and for their own individual good. And I think it's important to appreciate the rivalry has grown so toxic that even if cooperation might help to stem some of the bleeding in both countries, uh, neither one of them seems inclined to take that step. And I think that the devastation relatively could even be worse for the United States than it is for China. China, it appears, although there are growing doubts about the veracity of their data because of their expulsion of journalists, and there are competing sources of information. So it's difficult to, I mean, if you look at the Johns Hopkins coronavirus map, which is the the sort, the kind of the, the source that I've been going to, I know it's a source that many other folks go to, to get a sense of what are the global uh, tallies of confirmed infections, global fatalities. China's number of confirmed infections and fatalities really haven't changed, at least officially, um, for quite some time, I, I think that that I think that their numbers are dubious. Um, having said that, though, it does look like China has been able to reasonably contain the first wave of infections uh, in uh, in Hubei province. It looks like there's a nascent economic recovery. And importantly, if you look at the economic prospects for China versus the United States, it's true that the pandemic is definitely going to is, is definitely going to deal a blow to the Chinese economy this year. So the IMF forecast that China is only going to grow by a little over 1% this year. So it's obviously a big hit, but at least it's anemic growth for the rest of this year, but at least it's positive. You look at the forecast for the United States and the IMF is forecasting a contraction of about 6%. So the United States uh, uh, projected to to contract to about 6% economically, far and away has the highest number of confirmed infections. Um, It has now, I believe, over 80,000 confirmed fatalities. And so if the two, what, what I think about this, and, and it's, it's a very sobering hypothetical, but I think that it's important for us to consider, particularly in the context, not just of the bilateral relationship, but in the context of great power competition, in the context of thinking, how do we balance competitive and cooperative dynamics? I think to myself, how many lives might have been saved and how much economic damage might have been averted if the United States and China had collaborated in the aftermath, in the immediate aftermath of the, the first reported case of the coronavirus uh, in Wuhan. If they had collaborated the same way that they collaborated in the aftermath of the global financial crisis, say in 2008, 2009. So in 2008, Lehman Brothers collapses, precipitates the worst global financial crisis since the Great Depression. The United States and China engage in immediate emergency coordination. They establish a strategic and economic dialogue and their coordination played a very important role in preventing what could have been otherwise could have been another Great Depression, prevented a recession from turning into another Great Depression. They And they also, I should say, so they have a record of financial or macroeconomic coordination cooperation during times of crises. And in parallel, they also had established, and they had up until recently, a pretty robust 
track record of coordinating and collaborating during times of health crisis. So they collaborated in the aftermath of SARS in the early 2000s. They, uh, they collaborated in the aftermath of H1N1. They collaborated uh, when Ebola broke out in West Africa in 2014. And what we're seeing now is that, that that edifice, even that very basic edifice of cooperation is basically has just dried up. And so I, so I, I could go on, but it's to say, I think that we have reached, uh, we've reached a pretty pass when the United States and China either cannot subordinate bilateral frictions to global, to global imperatives, or they refuse to do so. And so you look at the toxicity of competition, you look at the, the, the fact that their need for their cooperation is greatest when their relationship has now reached its lowest, and the prognosis, um, literally and figuratively, is, is, is not good as much as I want to say something more optimistic. Mm-hmm. And do you see, I mean, on the economic aspect is interesting because, you know, people will expect some sort of coordination, like you said, when it was in 2008 or even in 1997, right, during the Asian financial crisis. And since you've done some work uh, and published a book on, on Lee Kuan Yew and, um, um, I mean, where China really was a very important partner of the United States at the time. So how do you see that economically playing out? I think one of the biggest differences between 2008 and now is that China is less, just because it's more, um, it's more indebted um, than it was back in 2000. So in 2008, there's this term now that's become popularized uh, that you know, China unlaunched this kind of credit bazooka you yeah. know, back in 2008. And it's, it's not clear to me that it has that luxury anymore on account of its growing debt. I think, the latest, I think the latest figure that I saw was something like it's gross Chinese debt as a percentage of its you know, GDP, it's something like 310%, or I think at this point above 310%. So China is far more indebted, um, in both in absolute terms, but also in proportional terms than it was in the immediate aftermath of the global financial crisis. So that's, that's sort of point one. And point two is in 2008, it, I, I don't want to make it seem as if the relationship between the United States and China was, was friction-free in 2008, hardly. And, and the relationship was, and there was strategic distrust that was starting to percolate. But I, I think that the, both the, the possibilities and I think the appetite in both Washington and Beijing for bilateral macroeconomic coordination and cooperation, um, and also the, the desire and the inclination to, to conduct that cooperation through fora such as the G20, um, I think that the appetite was a lot larger uh, in the aftermath of the financial crisis. So I, I think that from, the, from China's perspective, their calculation is one: we need to be we need to be more cautious about unlaunching another credit bazooka. I think that because of their debt situation, they just don't have that capacity. And two, it's not clear to me that there would be as much, even if they did have that, uh, even if they did have that fiscal capacity, it's not clear to me that they would want to do so. I think that just and again, it shows that the appetite for a bilateral coordination between the United States and China is just so much less than it was in two thousand eight. Um, but I think, and, and so and. I would say that the the economic situation for the United States, it, at least for the time being, it relatively looks to be more challenging. But there are headwinds for for Beijing, and so if I'm if I'm sitting in Beijing, I'm worried for a number of reasons. One is just sort of the direct hit that the pandemic has dealt to my to my economy, and I, I cited that forecast from the IMF earlier that they, they revised down the forecast for China's economic expansion this year to 1.2 percent, which by you know, relative, you know, standards, you know, given China's economic growth in years past, you know, 1.2% is obviously a very, very severe downgrade. So I'm, I'm worried about the, the direct hit. Two, I'm worried about depressed demand in the rest of the world. And so China is obviously, it's, it's highly dependent on uh, export, uh, export income. And to the extent that the rest of the world is undergoing a, 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 re- a very severe recession, potentially even a depression, um, I think what was the phrase that the the head of research at the IMF used? I think the great lockdown was the phrase that, that she used. Um, so if we are in this protracted, indefinite great lockdown, then a big source of growth for China, namely this export income, is going to be depressed. I also have to be worried if I'm in. Um, I also have to be worried if I'm in China about the potential acceleration of. Uh, offshoring. And so I think that a number of countries that have substantial production operations in China, it's not to say that they can relocate production overseas immediately, but I, I think that they are going to be thinking much more urgently about relocating production outside of China. And these are all uh, these are all sort of relatively new sort of pandemic-specific challenges that now exist on top of extant challenges. And so before, well before the, the pandemic hit, 
China was already dealing with an increasingly inefficient growth model. It was dealing with slowing growth. Um, it was dealing with a very grim demographic prognosis. So I think, oh, and then one last challenge that I think the pandemic has introduced, what now happens to the momentum of the Belt and Road Initiative? And I think this is actually, I think, going to be one of the big stories to watch, both in, in geoeconomic terms and geopolitical terms. I mean, the Belt and Road Initiative is, uh, or at least it has been un, until recently, I don't know what the status will be going forward, but this is really China's sort of flagship geoeconomic, geopolitical strategic project. And I think that if, I, if, if memory serves, I think that there are about 130 participating countries. Well, many of those 130 participating countries, again, even before the pandemic hit, um, they already posed high credit risk. They were already quite indebted. Now, many of those countries are applying to Beijing for debt relief. And I think that, that those, those applications for debt relief, they put China in a very difficult position. Um, China, on the one hand, doesn't want to be seen as stingy, and it doesn't want to be seen as overly, uh, overly harsh and not, and, and not empathizing with countries that are in growing debt distress. But it also doesn't want to just you know, basically just, you know, offer debt relief to everyone who comes. And so I think that the growing number of debt applications is going to put some serious downward momentum on the BRI. And given this, the centrality of the BRI in China's economic plans, um, it could have. So, so it, it's a long-winded way of saying that if I'm sitting in, in China, I have to be worried not only because of my extant economic difficulties that existed long before the pandemic hit, but the pandemic has introduced a number of additional economic difficulties. And so, yes, I still think that the economic, the economic picture where we stand now, I still think that the economic picture looks worse in the United States, but I don't think that China, I, I certainly don't think that China economically is out of the woods. I'm gonna shift gears a little bit um, because I'll take you a little bit on the authoritarian government and how China is portrayed because um, I mean, I've been doing work on cyber, um, cyber security, but looking a lot on disinformation mm -hmm. uh, regarding the, the COVID-19. And that's, that can be a long, longer conversation on that oh, aspect. Sure. Uh, but both the virus um, and its politicized narrative uh, began in China. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it started off by a thread uh, on Reddit. Uh, basically, you know, how, how they spoke about the virus, how this is how it started initially. And there was those numbers that China reported were clearly false, mm -hmm. uh, obviously, and it followed it followed by a quadrantric formula that didn't jab with the bi biology of the infection mm -hmm. of the disease. So the data should have been looked um, way before, but didn't fit what was reported. Mm -hmm. And that comes up to a question where, you know, as I mentioned to you a couple of weeks ago of, you know, um, China publishing kind of a pamphlet of how we successfully mm. brought the virus, um, more of a propaganda pamphlet uh, mm. that is spreading in, that's, that was given to everybody in Wuhan and now it's available all around China. And that gives me to ask you the question on measuring the depth and the intensity of authoritarianism in China over, that, over the last three months, three and a four months. And to what, you know, to, to what extent would that in the index have moved, right? Because, um, you know, um, has an authoritarian China became a more authoritarian, uh, authoritarian China in the course of this pandemic? And if so, how long can that endure, right? And then um, do you think that are we, is, is this becoming the new normal right now? Um, I mean, we already blame China a lot on lying on their uh, economic projections and economic growth and now lying on the numbers of, I think nobody will know the, the actual number of death, uh, of death in, in, in China right now. And um, they're looking for a second wave of the pandemic in Wuhan now. So, I mean, where does that put China in, in terms of authoritarianism moving forward? Are they gonna, you know, keep the lock even more or um, keep the population in, like you said, controlling the media a lot? Uh, so how do you see that moving forward now? Well, for you, for the Chinese Communist Party, it's it's a simultaneous sort of two pronged battle. I think, and there is a there's a domestic audience, and in parallel, there's an international audience. And I think that this, you know, we've we've heard a lot recently about the so-called wolf warrior diplomacy, and I think it's very much intended for a domestic audience and the international audience. So I think that the domestic message is, and the international message, and they're reinforcing. But I think that the message for for Chinese citizens is, look, 
we had to take some uh, measures that other that the outside world might regard as draconian. But look, we more or less have successfully contained the first wave of the the pandemic. Uh, we are restarting the uh, economy. Whereas, look, the re- much of the rest of the world, it's respond, you know, it's floundering. And uh, you look at the response of the United States. Um, and 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 Chinese officials have been taking jabs at the United States, at other Western countries, and saying, look. Uh, for all of the so-called virtues of liberalism and democracy, uh, you know, China has, has been more successful. I actually think, and, and it's interesting how much, and, and then I should say, before talking about this kind of authoritarian versus liberal split, um, they've also, Chinese uh, diplomats have also become increasingly aggressive in, in their diplomacy uh, abroad, not only because they are trying to push back on criticism about the veracity of their data, criticism about the transparency of their reporting, um, but because they feel that now, you know, we need to be proactive. I think that if, if you look at a lot of the tenor of the diplomacy, it's that it's not enough for China to defend its record. China has to go, it has to, uh, it has to accumulate and wield what it calls discourse power. It has to do more to control the narrative. Um, it's not clear to me how successful that diplomacy has been. I, I think that it probably has been more successful domestically than it has been internationally. And I think that actually you could make a case that increasingly that wolf warrior diplomacy is kind of boomeranging against the legitimacy of the Chinese Communist Party. And it's interesting to see how much that perception has shifted. I mean, I remember reading articles and op-eds and and news analyses in mid-March. So let's say maybe a month and a half ago. In mid-March, in early March, mid-March, one of the sort of prevailing, I wouldn't say prevailing, but certainly one of the pervasive narratives that you heard was that, look, uh, China was able to get its own domestic house in order. And now it's turning its, its sights outward. It's dispatching medical teams. It's dispatching or it's supplying the rest of the world with uh, personal protective equipment. And so China really is now, you know, where the United States, it's floundering at home and the United States seems to be missing an action abroad. China now has kind of arrogated itself to the position of being the so-called responsible stakeholder. That was a very common you know, narrative in, in early March and mid-March. I would say that now, I, I think that there are still some adherence to that view, but now that narrative is much more contested for a number of reasons. One, we hear reports now almost on a daily basis about how uh, medical equipment that China has shipped abroad is defective. Testing kits are, are defective. We're hearing more and more of those types of stories. There are existing and growing questions about the veracity of, of the data, as we were discussing earlier. Um, and I think that also there's been a lot of, I think a lot of diplomats abroad are recoiling at the way that uh, Chinese diplomacy has expressed itself. So Chinese officials demanding that recipients of medical largesse express their gratitude publicly. Uh, Chinese diplomats being very, very, not only not only touting their, their own alleged successes, but also mocking and deriding the responses of other countries. So I, I think that the narrative now is shifting and it's that it's it's not, it, I think there are questions about the data. There are questions about the way that kind of the the aggressiveness of of China's response and and the over and I think that I think that now there are a lot of questions. What I find actually quite quite remarkable is it's not only countries in China's immediate periphery that are are increasingly nervous about the way that China is conducting itself. I think you're starting to see recalibrations in places that that absent a pandemic, it's not clear to me that the recalibration either would have occurred or that it would have occurred as soon uh, as it is now. I mean, if, I think if you look at the recalibration that's underway in the European Union, some very, very strong statements coming out of the, uh, the European Union and of member countries, um, and even in, uh, in Sub-Saharan Africa, which obviously is courting Chinese trade and investment, but because of, uh, because of incidents of racism in, in China directed against uh, Africans, I think a lot of diplomats in, in uh, and African countries are increasingly starting to express reservations. Uh, many, many, we were talking about this earlier, many participating countries in the Belt and Road Initiative are increasingly concerned that about so-called debt trap diplomacy. So, um, so I think the point one is that the narrative that, there's the narrative that China is trying to present, um, I think it's starting to encounter more resistance. So that's, that's sort of point one. Um, point two, is the kind of there's this and again this is kind of an early march mid-march there was this uh, kind of I, I think simplistic dichotomy that uh, that posited that look look at what china's doing authoritarian systems are better democratic systems are floundering i think that the actual evidence is more it's more complex um and i think that the i think that the, sort of the right kind of uh, sort of aperture is not so much authoritarian versus liberal it's more 
sort of technic sort of the level of technocracy, so to speak, the level of the level of sort of technical competence in the government, the level of public trust in government. Um, the, the, the essay that I found really compelling in this regard was an essay by James Crabtree. He wrote an article for the MIT Technology Review, and he surveyed um, those, Asian, those Asian powers that have responded uh, up until this point quite well. So Taiwan, which has set the gold standard, Singapore, Hong Kong, Japan, South Korea. And he says that if you look at what unites those countries, it's not so much it's not really so much democracy, it's, it's technocratic competence, it's citizens' belief in, in government. And, and I think that the more, the more that this, and even if we look right now at sort of the record of, you know, the authoritarian record is mixed, the democratic record is mixed. So I think it's not so much authoritarian versus liberal, it's more how much faith do citizens have and confidence do citizens have in their government, how much coordination is there between the different levels of government, how much technical competence is there in the government. So that's the second point that I would make. And then the, the third point that I would make, because I, I've been I, just sort of going back over the remarks that I've made thus far in my own head, I've been talking about sort of the, I think the, the reputational damage that China is incurring. But I, I, think, I think that it's difficult to overstate the reputational damage that the United States is incurring in parallel. And I, I think that if you look, if you refract the pandemic crisis through kind of a G2 aperture or through a zero sum competition aperture, the conclusion might be that the reputational damage that China is incurring would redound to America's strategic benefit. I actually think that the more accurate view is that the United States and China are both going to come away from this crisis very damaged. And and I and I want to read a quote from an essay that's, that's rightly getting a lot of attention by by Kevin Rudd. So this was in uh, Foreign Affairs. Uh, the title is "The Coming Post-COVID Anarchy," and he he wrote this in Foreign Affairs in or for the website on May sixth. And 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 this is kind of, for me, the takeaway quote. He says, quote, despite the best efforts of ideological warriors in Beijing and Washington, the uncomfortable truth is that China and the United States are both likely to emerge from this crisis significantly diminished. Neither a new Pax Sinica nor a renewed Pax Americana will rise from the ruins. Rather, both powers will be, will be weakened at home and abroad. And I think that for the United States, I, I think that it's been very... Uh, I think it's been very sobering for much of the rest of the world to see um, how how quickly this pathogen has enfeebled the world's lone superpower. And I think that it's I, I think it's leading many observers, not only abroad, but even in the United States to say that, hey, we need to reconceptualize what it means to be powerful. What does it mean to be resilient? What it means to be strong? I mean, look at the United States. In some way, according to certain metrics, it is far and away and singularly in a class of its own in terms of power. $22 trillion GDP last year. So it accounts for roughly a quarter of the global economy. Um, spends well over $700 billion on national defense. It's the only country that is capable of projecting military power into every corner of the earth. And yet, when it came to provisioning personal protective equipment for its frontline responders, trying to treat sick patients, um, it ran out of PPE within a, few, uh, within a few weeks of the virus is broaching its shores. And it has, again, far and away, I think, it, I think when I last checked, about 1.3 million confirmed uh, infections, COVID-19 infections, over 80,000 fatalities. And so, and so I, I think that there's this kind of, there's this cognitive dissonance that a lot of people are experiencing. How can it be that the world's lone superpower is struggling so much? And there was, there was an op-ed the other day, I shouldn't say the other day, maybe a week ago or two weeks ago by uh, uh, Finan O'Toole, a very prominent Irish journalist. And he said that over the decades, the rest of the world has experienced many sentiments when thinking about the United States and when thinking about Americans. They've experienced admiration, envy, jealousy, anger, on and on and on, but only now have they experienced pity. And I remember, and, and that op-ed really hit me because I said, gosh, you know, the rest of the world, you know, pitying the world's lone superpower. But I think that the, the picture of a superpower that has been, has responded so chaotically and haphazardly at home um, so quickly ran out of basic medical equipment for its frontline responders. And also internationally, um, the United States typically in the post-war era has played the leading role in catalyzing collective action in dealing with transnational emergencies. And right now the United States seems to be somewhat missing in action. And so this to me, in terms of kind of, this is what I wanted to come to in terms of the geopolitical implications. And, and there's another quote that I, I, I want to read. I think one of the big geopolitical takeaways of of COVID-19 thus far, and, and I realize that we're only, you know, we're not even five months in this pandemic, so maybe the judgments I'm rendering now will be completely, uh, uh, you know, completely obsolete five months from now. But 
my most considered judgment from where, you know, you know, sitting here on May 12th, 2020, is that I think that the rest of the world is saying, look, neither the United States nor China is a credible steward of this, uh, uh, it, it, neither the United States nor China is a credible steward of the international system during the pandemic. And we simply, and we can't depend on either the United States or China to be a credible steward of a post-pandemic order, whatever shape it might take. And so I think that a lot of so-called middle powers, the small powers, medium-sized powers that maybe 10 years ago, maybe 20 years ago, um, entrusted some kind of faith in, in notions of a new model of great power relations between the United States and China, or entrusted some faith in this kind of nebulous but pleasant sounding US-China G2, I think the pandemic is clarifying for a lot of those countries that quite literally they cannot afford for their own sakes or for the sakes of their citizenries, they can't afford to watch the United States and China using the pandemic as a vehicle for trading mutual recriminations. They have to take matters into their own hands. And to that point, um, there was an article that came in the New York Times by, it was just a few days ago, so earlier this week, and I, I wanted to read a quote, um, really, really important article by Damien Cave and Isabella Kwai. It's called, uh, the headline is, China is defensive, the U.S. is absent, can the rest of the world fill the void? And, and if, you'll, if you'll indulge me for just a minute, um, a, a quote from their article, quote, Countries in Europe and Asia are forging new bonds on issues like public health and trade, planning for a future built on what they see as the pandemic's biggest lessons, that the risks of China's authoritarian government can no longer be denied, so kind of getting to what we were talking about earlier, and that the United States cannot be relied on to lead when it's struggling to keep people alive and working, and its foreign policy is increasingly America first. And then they go on. Next paragraph. The middle power dynamic may last only as long as the virus, but if it continues, it could offer an alternative to the decrees and demands of the world's two superpowers. Beyond the bluster of Washington and Beijing, a fluid working group has emerged with a rotating cast of leaders that has the potential to challenge, to challenge excuse me, the bullying of China, fill the vacuums left by America, and do what no lesser power could do on its own. And so I think we, and I'll stop here, I think that we are at a very critical geopolitical inflection point. There's this realization that the United States uh, is abdicating the role that it has traditionally played and it is preoccupied with domestic dysfunction. There's a parallel recognition that China, despite trying to portray itself as a responsible stakeholder and trying to portray itself as, as uh, acting as the sort of upholding this open economic order when the United States is advocating that China can't be trusted. And I think the rest of the world is saying, we need to take matters into our own hands. The problem is one of capacity. Even though those powers, I think, have thus far equipped themselves quite well, um, I, in an ideal world, you know, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore, Japan, Germany, and others that have responded well, ideally, they would have the diplomatic, economic, and military heft to kind of to sort of to take the reins from the United States and China and reinvigorate multilateralism. The question is one of capacity. So what happens when the two countries that collectively account for about two-fifths of the world economy that should be leading the world's response are abdicating or aren't trusted. And those powers that have acquitted themselves well might not necessarily collectively have the capacity. You put those two conditions together and we're at an impasse when it comes to collective action. But I, I think that on issues of whether it's dealing with this pandemic, future pandemics, coming up with vaccines, mitigating the worst effects of climate change, uh, ensuring that our economic order remains open, I think that what we're gonna see is on issue after issue after issue, this kind of, you know, what, what Damien Cave and Isabella Kwai referred to as this fluid working group of middle powers, I think that we're going to see in fits and starts, but I think we're going to see this fluid working group trying in earnest for their own survival to take matters into their own hands. That comes, I think, to the to the three C's going on. I think there's so many events in Washington the past mm -hmm. couple of weeks on U.S. and China. Uh, as, as an overflow of those for sure. But I think, you know, they can all be summarized in those three C's, which is competition, confrontation, and coexistence, right? Yep. And, you know, the launch of the U.S.-China trade and tech wars in, in 2017 um, announced its arrival that of, competi of competition and confrontation, but mm -hmm. COVID-19 kind of kicked it into overdrive. Um, but uh, I think there's, since you, you, you quoted some interesting um, article, there's, there's one that um, I think you read because you, you mentioned it on, on your Twitter handle, which I strongly follow to, to um, follow Ali on Twitter as well, because he's sharing some really interesting reading. Uh, one article was from uh, Evan Osnos, um, who writes that he calls it the uneasy coexistence uh, will be the, the likely future of US-China relation. And 
in policy terms, I think we can put it that that relation uh, will rest on competitive on competitive coexistence. Uh, I think that's the way to put it. But I think there's at least two fundamental obstacles to finding common grounds right now. Um, the first is how do you bridge the great divide between the newly empowered China and the United States, who's used to be number one. Um, and the, the second, I think the challenge here comes down to different notions of the international order. Mm -hmm. And I think we tend to uh, put that, the, the notion of order on the side, because it's like Brookings has the um, order from chaos. I think this mm -hmm. is very timely right now where we're resting in, in the international order of things. And I think the key question is, you know, what is its essential aspect? I think that's a key question. Who should define it? And how should it be maintained? I think those are the key questions that, that needs to be rested. Um, and uh, on that, I think I'll, I'll ask you the, the last question because uh, I, I will, um, as we are halfway through, I'll, I'll ask people to submit your question via the q and I'll just ask the last one to, to Ali right now. And um, the last question I have for you um, will be more of a prescriptive question uh, given where, where we at right now. And as we enter an election period who's pretty much a bit on, on standstill or is still happening or very uncertain as it is right now, uh, as everyone have different priorities and you know, bring the economy back on its foot, um, the, there's a real challenge for statecraft and diplomacy right now uh, and foreign policy, regardless of who's, who will be sitting uh, on 1600 um, Pennsylvania Avenue. Um, so I just want to forget a little bit about uh, who will be there for a second and ask you if what, would, what do you think would prove helpful um, if one wanted to begin the process of moving that U.S.-China relation in a more productive or constructive direction? Um, what would you recommend to whoever, you know, bipartisan, partisan um, uh, in the White House? What would you recommend? So I, I, I can only, you know, I can only speak for my, for myself yeah. and it's, and I can only speak for myself and, you know, as, you know, you know, being in the United States, I'll, I'll offer some thoughts on what I think that the United States might do. And obvious, but obviously I, I should caveat what I'm about to say by saying it takes two to tango and it's, you can't have, you can't even you can't salvage a baseline of cooperation if there isn't a willing partner. And so, to the extent that we are able to salvage a baseline of cooperation, um, even what I just said that's contingent upon coordinated reciprocal gestures. It can't be the case that the United States uh, inclines itself towards cooperation and China takes what it can takes what it can get, but doesn't reciprocate, or the other way around. I mean, I would say that from from the U.S. perspective, of course. There are, and, and, and we've talked about this on, on many occasions. Um, before I say anything else, competition is not uh, is not intrinsically bad, and, and I should say so. The, the there are aspects in which uh, there are uh, arenas in which the United States and China do compete, should compete, must compete, and and I think the competition can be uh, healthy. So one example is uh, over infrastructure development. If you consider the infrastructure needs of vast swaths of the developing world, the infrastructure needs are enormous. And if, if China provisions certain uh, brick and mortar infrastructure uh, that can boost the consumer economies of, de of the developing world, can, um, can boost you know, connectivity and can increase consumer market or potential export base to the United States, then there are opportunities that that type of competition is good. And if the United States comes in and says, well, Maybe we don't have a comparative advantage in developing brick and mortar infrastructure, but we have a comparative advantage along with partners such as Japan and Australia in developing electricity grids, power grids, uh, telecommunications. Um, so there's so you know we talk a lot about infrastructure competition that can be good. So so competition is not intrinsically bad. There are arenas in which U.S.-China competition uh, is is healthy for the rest of the world. I think the, what I would say is that we have to compartmentalize and realize when is, when is bilateral competition uh, healthy? When is it necessary? Uh, and I think, that we, I think that the United States should be pushing back to the extent that China is trying to promulgate an order that is more conducive to authoritarianism in which individuals aren't comfortable expressing their points of view. I do think that the United States should push back. 
But the United States, despite being the world's lone superpower, it can't contest and it shouldn't contest China everywhere. Not every Chinese statement and not every Chinese uh, action is cause for alarm. Uh, and I think that if the United States treats every pronouncement uh, or action by China as cause for alarm, it's going to exhaust itself. Uh, that's a recipe for strategic insolvency. So I think you know, competition uh, is not intrinsically bad. It can be good. But deciding when and where to contest China, uh, deciding what actions China takes threaten U.S. vital national interests or threaten an open global system and deciding when to push back. Um, but then the second point, and this gets back to, I think, a, a conversation we were having or earlier in our conversation is recognizing when competition, when recognizing when unmitigated and uncircumscribed competition spills over or, or, or bleeds over so much that it precludes cooperation, even when that cooperation is self-evidently beneficial. Um, it's not, so my, uh, my friend Jake Stokes, who works at the U.S. Institute for Peace, he, he wrote an op-ed the other day uh, for Vox, and, and I, he, had, he, had a, he had a nice line. He says, no one wins, no one wins a pandemic. And I, I think that's very, you know, when I look at, and even now, you know, we, we've been talking a lot about some of the pandemic's geopolitical implications, and I think it's important, yet there are very important geopolitical consequences that are unfolding uh, as we speak. But I think stepping back and recognizing that first and foremost, leaving aside geopolitics, there is a very acute health emergency. There's a very acute economic emergency. And the United States and China are not, you know, the United States and China by not cooperating, aren't helping themselves. Mm -hmm. The Chinese economy has taken a massive hit. America's economy has taken a massive hit. China has suffered immensely in terms of its health. The United States has suffered, based on the published data, has suffered far worse. Um, I mean, and just think about, I mean, think about the U.S. just for a second. As I said earlier, 1.3 million, I think above 1.3 million confirmed COVID-19 infections, over 80,000 fatalities, I think over 33 million Americans have filed for unemployment benefits in the last seven or eight weeks. Uh, the economy is, is projected to shrink by by six uh, percent for this for this year. Um, so when you look at the devastation that this pandemic is is inflicting, um, and you still don't and you still don't think, well, can we salvage a baseline of cooperation? There's, there, I, I think that, that that needs to be sort of a, uh, an occasion to sort of press pause, or even just look at there's a. Uh, the conference, the conference that, that the European Union recently uh, convened uh, for vaccine development, and it was it was widely attended, but many of the great powers didn't send uh, representatives. So the United States and China noticeably didn't participate in that in that conference that the European Union ha uh, held, which I believe raised about eight. Uh, I think I believe it raised about eight billion dollars, if memory serves, towards coming up with a vaccine. And the Economist had a very nice piece that says. Um, if, if the United States and China are not, or if leaders in, in Washington and Beijing reach the conclusion that it isn't appropriate to send representatives to conference about developing a vaccine, there's something wrong in, in, in something wrong in the strategic thinking there. So, so it's compete, you know, competition can be healthy, can be good, compete where necessary, be vigilant, but don't allow competition to become an imperative unto itself. Competition is a means to an end. It's not an impaired, it's not an end in and of itself. And recognize that these, for better or for worse, you know, China is, it is presently central to the global economy. It will continue to be central to the global economy. And no matter what transnational crisis or no matter what transnational challenge you enumerate, climate change, pandemics, proliferation, we can, you know, maintaining macroeconomic stability, we can go on and on and on. There is no transnational crisis or emergency on which the world can make sustained progress without some baseline of U.S.-China cooperation. So I'll stop there. Yeah, and that's a good point because it, it goes along with the, the questions that are coming in and I'll combine uh, those questions into one um, for the sake of time. One touches on Taiwan. Um, so the first one is Taiwan was well prepared for the pandemic uh, due to lessons from SARS with much surplus, surplus PPE. Uh, so PPE manufacturing, pandemic expertise. Uh, Taiwan has uh, preferentially uh, provided PPE and its expertise to its diplomatic allies. So should the U.S. encourage more nations to become Taiwan's diplomatic allies? That's the first question. And I'll combine it with the second one that touches on India. Um, do you see India playing a future role with U.S. trade 
And if so, uh, what do you think the PRC reaction would be? Yeah, these are these are these are really really important, you know, questions. And I think actually, and and I'm glad that the, the I'm glad that the questioner brought up Taiwan and India because uh, one of the points that I I should have made actually while I was speaking, and I and I I neglected to do so, but but this this question gives me an opportunity to do so is, um, we often talk about you know what is America's China policy, but I think a number of observers make the point, and I, I think rightly so, that we need to have sort of a broader, we need to embed our China policy within a broader Asian Pacific policy or an Indo-Pacific policy, that, which is, I think, now sort of more the, sort of the fashionable parlance. But um, the, the Asia-Pacific or the Indo-Pacific, there are many other uh, countries besides China that have agency, that are formidable economies, that are formidable militaries in their own respect. So whether we talk about Australia, uh, Japan, India, South Korea. And I think that we need to think about, because the United States alone, I think the evidence thus far suggests that the United States alone is not going to be able to push back against certain uh, trade practices or economic practices of China's that it declares unfair. Uh, and I think, and just as a brief digression, and I promise I'll come back to Taiwan and India, but just in terms of, sort of the limits of U.S. unilateral leverage, uh, look, if you look at the Trump administration's pressure campaigns against um, against China. So if you look at trade tensions, you look at the, the imposition of tariffs. So if you look at what impact did the imposition of tariffs have on China? What impact did the Trump administration's pressure campaign against Huawei have? In both cases, the preliminary data suggests that those campaigns actually backfired. So if you look at exports, China's share of global exports at the end of last year was actually slightly higher than it was when the first tranche of the administration's tariffs hit in mid-2018. Uh, if you look at Huawei, Huawei recorded record sales last year. Now, it's possible that as to the extent that the Trump administration sustains those pressure campaigns, it's, it's possible that if other countries start feeling the pain and if, if there's enough you know, decoupling or if there's enough sort of relocation of production away from China, it's possible that those pressure campaigns conducted unilaterally might in due course yield some of the desired results. But I think that the evidence thus far is that the United States alone, it can cause China headaches economically in the short run and the medium run, but I don't think that the United States alone has the leverage um, to, uh, to, to change certain Chinese practices. Um, and incidentally, I think we also need to, and, and this is gonna be important for thinking about policy towards China going forward, um, our allies and partners are not gonna go along with us lock, stop and barrel. And I think that this is one of the problems of saying, you know, we need a coalition. Uh, is I think that on certain issues and in certain cases, allies and partners will come along, but in certain for certain issues and in certain cases, they won't come along with us. And I think um, you know, the questioner mentioned India. I think that India actually is it's kind of the, the, the sort of the, the archetypical example in this regard. Um, India prizes its policy independence and policy autonomy. I think it's, it, it is increasingly concerned about China's military modernization, particularly the naval component of it. It is... Uh, pushing back against, or is concerned about certain uh, trade practices, certain industrial practices of China, but it thus far has not gone on board with imposing blanket restrictions on certain Chinese telecommunications companies. It hasn't gone on board with tariffs, and it is like many other countries uh, in the Asia Pacific. It's trying to balance growing diplomatic and security ties with the United States and growing diplomatic and security ties with other members of the Quad but also increasing trade and investment with China. I mean, China is the resident economic power. And so I, I think that when we, when we make, uh, uh, or, or when we engage in overtures with longstanding allies and partners in the region, it should be respecting their agency, respecting their policy independence, and not saying you must come with, along with us on all issues and in all instances, but can we selectively think about how to curate those or cultivate those relationships? Um, and then on Taiwan, I think that Taiwan geopolitically is is one of the big winners of this pandemic. And, and again, I realized that just a minute ago, I was saying that we shouldn't, that no one wins a pandemic. Um, but geopolitically, I think that Taiwan has, uh, has accrued enormous geopolitical gains as a result of this. I think that um, Taiwan's response, if you just look at the number of just confirmed infections, the number of confirmed fatalities, both in absolute terms, but also in proportional terms, proportional to Taiwan's population, Taiwan has really set the gold standard for how to respond domestically. Um, number one, 
it also uh, has uh, it also has challenged this uh, th this kind of emerging trope that authoritarian systems are more capable of handling pandemics. Taiwan is a is a vibrant uh, democracy and it's set the gold standard. It's playing an important role in provisioning personal protective equipment for the rest of the world. And so I think that I think that Taiwan has every right to, to push for greater diplomatic uh, greater diplomatic heft, greater representation at international institutions. And I think that the United States should be strengthening its relationship with Taiwan. And it's it's a delicate balancing act in balancing sensitivities with China. But um, I don't think that the United States should, I don't think that the United States should not strengthen its relationship with Taiwan for fear of offending uh, China's diplomatic sensitivities. I'm not saying that it should engage in reckless actions that would that would dismantle uh, decades-long understandings that are, that are important for regional stability, but it should continue to cultivate its relationship with Taiwan. There's another question on supply chains, because we touched up on it a little bit at the beginning. So do you think, um, is it realistic to expect a rebuild of strategic materials supply chains that don't touch um, China, given labor cost advantages and the size of their domestic markets? The the short answer is that for at least for the time being, probably not. I think that so on the issue of supply chains, a, a couple of points. One is we need to think about select. I, I would say that America's imperative should be selective decoupling and selective reconfiguration of supply chains rather than kind of a, a wholesale rupture or a wholesale decoupling. One, I don't know that a wholesale decoupling is is feasible. Uh, and two, I, I don't think that we should try to test whether it's feasible or not, because I think that just the the economic cost would be enormous. And, and even, and I should say, um, even very vigorous proponents of hard decoupling uh, concede that in the short and in the medium run, that that type of rupture would be enormously, enormously costly to American consumers, enormously costly to American businesses, and that type of rupture would be especially devastating right now, given the acute pain that the U.S. economy is experiencing. I mean, again. 33 million Americans have filed for unemployment benefits in the last seven or eight weeks. Our economy is forecasted to shrink by 6%. And it's not clear, but if you look at the labor report that came out, um, of the 20, I think it was 20 and a half million jobs that were lost in April, the data suggested 18 million of those were temporary layoffs. But it's not clear to me that when, when, we have, that when the United States has come out of this pandemic, that all 18 million of those allegedly temporary layoffs will, will come back. So I, I think that they're likely to be lasting scars. But so the point is that we, we should be careful about taking reckless actions that would inflict even greater pain upon an American consumer and an American business who are already struggling very significantly. Um, I do think that we should think about, particularly when it comes to uh, medical equipment, and I think that there is, I would say there's broad bipartisan agreement that the United States needs to, uh, the United States needs to think about how it can reduce its reliance on China for uh, essential drugs for personal protective equipment. There's a very active discussion underway in Congress right now. There is slew, there's a, a slew of legislation uh, in Congress right now that would, over time, make American supply chains more resilient. Um, but given China's extant centrality in supply chains, um, even for those, even for countries that are desperate to reduce the reliance on China um, in, uh, for, for production, um, that process, at best, I think even on the most accelerated timelines, that's 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 a medium-run prospect. It's a long-term prospect. It, it's not it's not an on or off switch. I think that the question right now is, how do we? And, and so I would say realistically, if I were sitting in Washington, or for that matter, if I were sitting in in, in other capitals around the world, but but sitting in Washington, I would say, what are steps that we can take over the medium run to long run to reduce our reliance on China for uh, for drugs, for medical equipment, also for inputs that go into highly sensitive medical or uh, military technologies, and in the short run, and it's that, but that's sort of a medium to long run task. What are steps that I can take in the in the short run and medium run to build in greater points of resiliency within supply chains? Um, and so I think so. Our priority should be medium run to long run. What can I do to reduce the re reduce our dependence on China for certain items, not on all items? And I don't think that a precipitous decoupling or a total rupture would be good um, for the U.S. consumer or for U.S. businesses. Um, in the short and medium run, how can we build in greater points of resiliency and redundancy into our supply chains? Um, but I think that it, there's, understandably, there's been a lot of talk about trying to onshore American production. I think that onshoring American production, I don't think that it would be feasible. 
I think that it would make it would reduce American economic competitiveness very, very significantly, um, and it would actually make our exports far less competitive. So I, I think um, what so my sort of big takeaway is that yes, this the, the pandemic has clarified the the urgency of reducing our reliance, our meaning U.S. the U.S. reliance on China for certain items, but I think that we need to proceed cautiously. We need to think about the feasibility and the consequences of a precipitous or wholesale economic you know, rupture. And, and also in, in a geopolitical or security perspective, you know, um, you know, Henry Farrell and Abraham Newman have done really good work on this notion of weaponized interdependence. And they've done really pioneering scholarship explore, exploring how interdependence between the United States and China, trade and technological interdependence, it, it, it has presented certain opportunities. It's also presented risks. Um, but they say, they talk about how if we're going to unwind this weaponized interdependence in a way that preserves some of the benefits, but also reduces, mitigates some of the risks, we do so incrementally, we do so selectively. We don't just say, let's decouple tomorrow, because it's not possible, number one. And number two, um, that type of forced uh, severance would actually create a lot more consequences than benefits. We have three more minutes, so I'll take one more question that is uh, from on Facebook, which looks at the... U.S.-China medical and scientific relations, um, which is an interesting question. So to what extent has the propaganda war cut off those ties? Um, a couple of weeks ago, um, a lot of um, Chinese experts and U.S. experts, I mean, U.S., especially U.S. experts, signed up a letter um, saying that we have to be careful not to break uh, those ties. Um, and we know from the 1918 pandemic, uh, that the second wave killed more than the first. Uh, and there's good reason to believe that uh, we may go through a second and third wave of coronavirus pandemic. So to what extent is there university groups, right? Because we know about uh, Chinese Confucius Center and so forth. So um, to what extent is there university groups that are talking to each other about this? That's one of the bright spots. So Axios did a story the other day and they said that despite all of the, I shouldn't say rancor, that's understating, despite the really just the outright hostility between national level governments in the United States and China, one of the bright spots and this kind of, I guess, maybe is, is a way of ending somewhat optimistically that there is still, and despite the the, the crackdowns and the difficult, the increasingly stringent conditions that are being imposed upon collaboration between U.S. and Chinese doctors and scientists, that thankfully, uh, that that edifice of scientific cooperation and medical cooperation is still, um, is still quite active, and that um, U.S. Uh, U.S. researchers, doctors and scientists and their Chinese counterparts, they're having, they're engaging in very robust conversations, they are trying to map out uh, the sequence of the coronavirus, they're trying to think about how they can develop treatments, how they can develop vaccines, um, and that's a credit to uh, that edifice of cooperation that had been built up, that it had been built up over the course of the past you know, 15 or 20 years. I mean, I mentioned earlier that the United States and China, they developed a very robust um, academic uh, exchange for dealing with or for thinking about managing healthcare crises in response to uh, SARS, H1N1, Ebola, and thankfully, national level, sort of the, the poisonous national level environment hasn't trickled down and, and destroyed that edifice of cooperation. But Having said that, um, you can't um, you can't deny that 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 national level acrimony it has made cooperation between U.S. and Chinese researchers and scientists it has made it more challenging, uh, but that cooperation still endures. So I think that that's good. And 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 I and I think that 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 joint letter that you refer to and that the the, the questioner referred to it's a critically important letter. And I think that we need to remind ourselves that um, even the greatest of competitors, uh, even the greatest, in some cases, adversaries, in the case of the United States and the Soviet Union, found common cause. Uh, the United States and the Soviet Union, as I, if I'm thinking of the right, if I'm thinking of the joint letter that, that you and the questioner had in mind, uh, that joint letter noted that even at the height of the Cold War, you take the United States and the Soviet Union, nuclear armed adversaries posing existential threats to one another, had totally different conceptions of world order, were actively exporting competing visions of world order, actively exporting competing visions of ide competing ideologies, and yet uh, for, for their, they had a shared national interest in uh, developing arms control agreements, and they also, and this is something that's getting more attention now, uh, collaborating to come up with a smallpox vaccine. And so, I, and I think that, that it, it's very, very important to remind ourselves of those types of examples, that if the United States and the Soviet Union 
which harbor no which harbor no intention of permanent cohabitation, which viewed each other as existential adversaries, were nonetheless able to sign arms control agreements and collaborate on smallpox uh, research to develop a vaccine. Certainly, the United States and China, having seen the damage of the Cold War, having seen the damage inflicted by the two World War, surely they can replicate that example. And I think that they owe it to their to their respective citizenries to do so. They owe it to the rest of the world to do so. And and like I said earlier, uh, this pandemic at some point will pass, but there will be other pandemics. That's just the reality. There will be other pandemics. There will be other transnational crises that demand their cooperation. And so I, I, I hope that if I hope the one lesson that we can draw from great power rivalries and competitions of decades and centuries past is that even in the most existential of competitions, there are avenues and there are, are fora for cooperation if there is willing and competent leadership on both sides. Well, though, I think we run out of time, um, but uh, let me thank you all for joining us today. And thank you very much, Ali, uh, again, for your time and, and terrific insights always. And warm thank you to IWP for hosting uh, this webinar. And I salute uh, them for <laughs> this smooth transition online. It's been very hard for all universities. And I wish that everyone manages to stay uh, safe and, uh, and healthy. So again, uh, thank you very much. And thank you very much, Ali, again. Thanks, Patricia. I really appreciate the invitation. Thank you. Bye-bye.